there's always an opportunity to start again. Why? Because His grace, I mean, His mercies are new every morning. Every morning. You can wake up and His mercies are there new every morning. Now, last week we talked about how uh, you can recognize the voice of the enemy. And the voice of the enemy first came to Jesus and said, Hey, listen, why don't you take the, the stones and turn it into bread and satisfy your need? Remember now, Satan did the same for Eve. He offered her something to eat. Satan did the same for Esau. He offered him something to eat in exchange for a promise, his birthright. And Satan comes to Jesus and offers him bread and says, Hey, why don't you, because you can, turn these stones into bread and satisfy your hunger, satisfy your need. And so we oftentimes do that in exchange for the promises that God, God told us and called us to live for Him and not for ourselves and satisfy ourselves, but rather please Him. Then the voice of the enemy came. What was that second one? And he said to him, why don't you jump off here and command the angels to carry you and bring you safe so that you won't fall and even dash your foot against a stone. Can you see how Satan was quoting scriptures as he was tempting? He was actually using the Bible to tempt people with into evil. And so he tempts Jesus with the word of God, and he says, jump off, and God's angels will carry you. But then uh, he said, hey, listen, the Bible says, Jesus didn't say, hey, listen, Satan. Jesus said, <laughs> God says, you will not test God. You should not test him. Now, he can test your faith, but you may never test his patience, his kindness, and his mercies. However, even though he says you may not test his mercies. Now, remember, that doesn't mean his mercies aren't new every day. It just says you're not allowed to test them. But his mercies are new for you and I every day. And no matter what loss you've experienced, or no matter where you are in life, you can start afresh. How many of you have at some point in your life made the decision to turn over a new leaf? Usually we do that in the beginning of the year, right? I'm going to turn over a new leaf. And some of us are wanting to make that decision today. <laughs> I'm going to turn over a new leaf. It's almost like every morning, every day, it's like, all right, today's going to be different. <laughs> you know, we choose to turn over a new leaf, and we should. Now, there's no way for anyone to actually start again from the beginning. But since God's mercy is on you every day, you can start today. You can start again today, no matter where you are in the road in life, no matter what it is that has happened, you can start again today and become the story that glorifies God. You know, oftentimes when we think of authority, we think of somebody who rules over another, you know, somebody who's in charge over others. But if you take the word authority and you understand what God said or meant by what He said when He gave you authority. Authority is the word author. Authority is the right to author. And God has given you the right to author certain things in your life. You can choose to live below your means. And so author a comfortable end of the month. Are you with me? You can choose to author an understanding 
and cultivate a marriage that where two people love, where two people understand one another, you can choose to author depending on the kind of effort you're going to put into it. You can choose to author much of your environment, not all of it, but much of it. You can choose to author the outcome, much of the outcome of your years. You have the right to author. And that is the word authority. God has given it to you. He's given you His word. If you live by it, it will change so much regarding your life. So today I want to share with you a few things to keep in mind for those of you who are choosing to start again. It doesn't have to be with your whole entire life. It could be with a relationship to start again. It could be with any part of your life. And the first thing that we have to realize is that we have to listen to pain. Pain speaks. Many times we don't even learn from the very pain we just experienced. We just go right back and repeat the same thing we did that ultimately, that initially brought, that originally brought that pain in the first place. Let me say that again. I can't believe I just botched it up. And we oftentimes just go right back to the same things that caused that pain in the first place, right? And so we don't learn, but we should learn from pain. Pain is speaking to us about our problem. It is not the problem. It is telling you that you have one. Disease comes from the concept of having a dis-ease. It's not comfortable. It's a dis-ease. There's a pressure. There's a pain. There's a level of pain, a level of dis discomfort. Now, a person, uh, you know, must see pain as a teacher. It is something we learn from. We can learn from other people's pain we see them have. We can learn also from our own pain that we have experienced. It's like when a toddler puts his, her, his or her hand on the, on the hot stove and suddenly that stove burns them and, and they'll pull their hand away. But sadly, in life, many repeat the cycle of pain because they refuse to listen to that pain and learn from that pain that they have experienced. So the question today is, what is your pain? What are your disappointments teaching you? What is your pain telling you? And what are your regrets? What are you learning from your regrets? Now, whatever you do, don't live in denial because we do so. We oftentimes just want to live in denial and we are called to live soberly. In Titus 2 verse 11 and 12, it says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, what has appeared to all men? Can we just shout it out? The, what has appeared to all men? The grace of God has appeared to all men. And this grace of God brings salvation. Now, it says here, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly. So, let's just take the sentence and, and see what it's saying. Teaching us, what's teaching us? The grace of God, okay? Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly. So it, take out the centerpiece. It says, teaching us that we should live soberly. How do we live soberly? By denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. You live soberly by denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Who teaches you to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts? 
The grace of God. Who teaches you to live soberly? The grace of God. Who teaches you to not deny the problem that caused you to now have this pain? The grace of God. It teaches us to live soberly. Now let me ask you, um, the opposite of living soberly is living in deception. The person that's not sober is the person who's deceived. Let me say it the other way around. The person that's deceived is the one that's not soberly looking at things because he's deceived, right? And so the grace of God helps us sober up and not deny the fact that it's not just the devil that brought this into my life because there are three enemies, right? It's the devil for sure and his enemy and his demons, but it's also the world and it's also the flesh. And we can bring ourselves out of the world as we deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And we can eliminate a lot of the pain in our lives. We can buffet our body and discipline our flesh and so eliminate a lot of the pain that we experience in life. Right? Can everybody say, you have authority? authority. Now be responsible. responsible. Because the word responsible is to have the ability to respond scripturally in every situation. So we have to learn to be sober. Do not live a life of self-deception where you do the opposite of what Titus 2, verse 11 and 12 is telling us. So to start again, one has to listen to pain. You have to listen to the discomfort in your life. You have to listen to the loneliness, the emptiness that has come, and you go like, what is this? And where did this come from? There's a root where it came from. I love how Jesus actually outlines this. He says, now, hey, listen, you, you were told that if you commit adultery, you are now an adulterer, right? But I tell you that if you look at another woman with lust, you are guilty of committing adultery. So he said to you, you see that fruit, adultery? I tell you, that even if you have just the root, the lust that leads to adultery, even if you just have the root that leads to that fruit, it's part of the same tree and you're guilty of it. He said, now, if you kill somebody, you'll be guilty of murder. But I tell you that if you're angry at somebody, you see, you don't guess, they don't, people don't just kill somebody else. They first get angry and then they kill. It was a response, right? And he said, so the root, anger, of the fruit, murder, that root is as much part of the tree as, just the, as the fruit is. So you are already guilty of the very same thing. So we have to look at pain and we have to go like, that's just a result, a fruit of a root somewhere. And what is that root? <laughs> is it something in the world where I'm not living according to Titus, where I am Denying ungodliness and denying the worldliness in my life. Or maybe I've given myself to the flesh. Somehow there's a root that has brought a certain fruit into my life. I have to recognize it. I have to learn from it. And I have to turn to start again. Listen to pain. Number two, recognize and cooperate with God's people in your life. Recognize and cooperate with the people that God has already placed in your life. 
And we tend to too often say, well, you know what, God placed this person in my life, but you know what, I'm going to wait for the next one instead. <laughs> I'm going to wait for the next person God sends because it might be nicer. But here, you see, we see that Moses was sent to bring the children of Israel out of slavery. Elijah was sent to save the woman or the widow at Zarephath from hunger and starvation. Jesus was sent to save human race. God always sends a, a human being, a person, when it comes to saving. So recognize the people that God has sent into your life. Some of these people, of course, you know, they have different personality types. And they could be a warrior like David, or they could be a leader like Moses, or they could be a friend like Jonathan, or they could be a servant like Martha. They come in all types and places, but God knows who you need. Uh, God also knows who you want, but that is secondary to who you need, right? God knows what you need, and He will send people into your life. But one thing is for sure that we, as brothers and sisters in Christ and in the body of Christ, we, we should give up the idea that relationships are simply convenient or relationships are simply there for sympathy or relationships are simply there for intimacy. No. You see, they are there in fact as part of God's plan for your life. God molds you through relationships. God leads you through relationships. He influences you through relationships. He impacts you through relationships. Some relationships are simply too expensive to have, and, and truthfully, you should really be done with that. You should really be done with some relationships. You see, certain relationships will cost you your strength. Other relationships will cost you your confidence before God. And then you have relationships that will cost you your focus on the Lord and focus on the things of God. It's so easy for me. Uh, I've said it so many times, but you have to ask your question, is this relationship from God or not from God? Well, how do you know? You ask a simple question. Is this relationship drawing me away from the Word of God? Or is it encouraging me toward the Word of God? It's a simple thing, simple question to answer. What is that relationship doing for you? And it's a hard thing. I didn't want to read it, so I didn't put it in yet, but now I'll quote it for you. <laughs> How about that? It was actually Jesus who said. It was Jesus who said, watch out, because family is where we will be deceived when it comes to this issue. It'll be family. Most people think Jesus, you know, he came to bring unity. No, he did not. Everything he touches just splits. I mean, even to the end, when his foot touches, when he comes back and his foot touches the mountain, it will split. The curtain ripped in two. Everything, whether it be the goats and the sheep, every, there's always a dividing when it comes to Jesus. He hangs on a cross and both of these guys just get into an argument. Can you believe? I mean, there are two guys hanging on a cross, bleeding to death. They've been crushed. Their bones are being broken. They've been slaughtered like animals. Jesus hangs between them and they start arguing. What in the world? I kid you not. You go through the scriptures and see every single time Jesus shows up, there they go. And then Paul says there has to be fractions. There has to be dividings between you. Talking to the church. Why? So that you can see the right from the wrong. There has to be a, div a dividing. And I'll, I'll show you that verse. 
So understand that we have to recognize and cooperate with the people that God has sent into our lives if, in fact, we are serious about starting again afresh. If it's up to me, I will completely and utterly wreck my life. If it's up to you, you if it's only up to you, you will completely and utterly wreck your life. Uh, man's heart is evil. I'm not as evil as I could possibly be thanks to the common grace of God. But if it was up to you and I, we would wreck everything around us. But thank God for His goodness in our lives and for His grace and His mercy in our lives that He constantly helps us and He guides us and He redirects us. And one of the ways to do so is through relationships. So we have these relationships that will cost you your strength and your confidence and your focus and even at times your reputation. But then there are those relationships who will benefit you eternally. They will benefit you here and there. Relationships who will cause you to be strengthened. Like Jonathan who strengthened David. Like Paul who confronted Peter publicly and said, you hypocrite. Peter was a big guy, just so you know. I mean, Peter was a guy that walked up to the gate beautiful, and there was, there was a beggar, and he walks up to this man who was, I forget exactly all that was wrong with him, but he was handicapped, and he says, this man was asking for money, and he says, uh, silver and gold I don't have. And this is, this is huge. He says, but what I do have, I give you. He grabs him. He doesn't pray for him. He grabs him, and he says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. I mean, Peter was a big name, and here comes Paul. And he says, you hypocrite, stop. And here's Paul. You know, we need some of those people in our lives. Jonathan strengthened David. Paul corrected Peter's hypocrisy. And also Paul fought for Onesimus' freedom, the slave, and for his forgiveness. We need these people in our lives, not the ones who suck the strength from you, not the ones who destroy your confidence, and not the ones who always lead you to the edge to see how far you can test God's mercies every morning, or every evening, and hopefully they'll be fresh every morning, right? And so we need these people in our lives that will walk up to us and say, here's the scripture, do with it what you will. You see, when we look for examples where God chooses to sovereignly reach a person through His relationships, we have multiple examples. I mean, it's all throughout scriptures. And I'll give you one. You know, there's so many that we know of. Elijah, Elisha, Moses, you know, uh, and so forth. But, Paul, Timothy. But, here's, let, me, let me give you another one. It says in, in Titus 2, verse 3 and 4. It says similarly. Similarly. How would you pronounce it? Thank you. Like that. Teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers, all right? Um, instead, what should they do? They should teach others what is good. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. These older women must train the younger women to do what? Love their husbands and their children. First and foremost... I want to show you that we have a bunch of relationships here. We have wives and husbands, mothers and children, and the older ladies that teach the wives how to love their husbands and teach the mothers to love their children. So we have a bunch of relationships there. There's something else 
I want to show you is that it's, a, it's something to be taught. It's so funny. I, I, I love rubbing shoulders with worldly people. And I've been asking this question uh, more often, like, what is the main ingre ingredient of a happy marriage? And um, I can't actually tell you guys the answers people give me. <laughs> I'm just completely shocked <laughs> every time. <laughs> What's the ingredient for a happy marriage? And so uh, some, some uh, unmarried ladies go like, well, we're not going to get married because we don't submit to no man. I'm like, really? You don't submit to no man? Where do you work? No, I work right here at Menards. Do you realize you have four supervisors who are all male and you submit to them? And after you've submitted to them for money, you submit to them, you go out, get into your car, you start driving the speed limit. And then when you break the speed limit, the cop pulls you over and he's a man. And then, you know what, you uh, go to the judge and the judge is a man and you obey all of them. Why? Because you want to stay free from prison, right? And so you submit for money's sake, you submit for freedom's sake, but when it comes to love, forget you. I ain't submitting to no man. <laughs> I run the show when it comes to marriage. When you look at that verse in Ephesians 5, it actually starts that portion there where husbands and wives, talks about husbands and wives. I think I forget the verse number. But the one before it, it says now, uh, submit yourselves one to another. Submit yourselves one to another. Right? And then it continues and says, now wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as Christ as the church submits to Christ, and then it continues. However, we're talking about relationships and how we have to embrace the relationships and the positions of the relationships that God has placed in our lives if, in fact, we want to start over and we want to start fresh. And here we see that Paul is speaking to Titus, and he says, "'Teach the older ladies to train the younger women to love their husbands.'" Teach them to love their husband because it doesn't come natural. Teach them how to do this because a young woman, even though she may not age in years, she doesn't necessarily know how to love. God sends an older lady to teach them how to love. And they may have children. It doesn't mean they know how to be parents. They have to be taught how to parent. And God put the structure together. He sovereignly chose to do it this way. How did He do it? Older ladies, you teach the younger ladies how this ought to be done. Younger ladies like to go to other younger ladies. And then they go like, well, what do you think God wants? <laughs> awesome. So if, if you are starting again after having experienced some kind of loss, maybe it's a loss of peace within your home. Maybe it's a loss of intimacy. I don't know what it is. If you're starting again, Know that God has given us directives. He has given us direction. And one of them is to recognize and cooperate with the people that God has placed into our lives. The third thing we need to know when we choose or if we choose to start again is that we have to keep on walking into the right direction. Keep walking in the right direction. It's not always the easy road. It's, it's the right one that we have to choose, of course. And everything, of course, continually changes. Weather changes, people change, circumstances change, and every disappointment has an expiry date. Every disappointment will eventually come to an end, and it will no longer have an effect on your life. But know this, that miracles happen as quickly as that disappointment took place. God 
is involved. Do you know it's so important to understand that all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to His purposes, not their own plans. All things work together for the good to those who love God, and that is always visible, and are called according to His purposes, not their own plans. So when this is true about us, we can confidently say, God, this was painful, but I'm walking into the right direction, and I know that you work out all these things for good. Now, all, all things good don't taste well, like, for instance, you know, some vegetables. But it's good for you, right? And God knows what's good in comparison to what we think is good. Walk into the right direction consistently. Some people are waiting for God. They're waiting for God's hand to move. They're waiting for a breakthrough of some sort. They're waiting to see something come from God before they choose to serve God. But today I want to tell you that you have to keep walking in the right direction because God's deliverance happens while you do so. <laughs> you know, I have seen throughout ministry how God touches people's lives while serving Him. The deception is to think that one day when I'm free, I'll really serve God. No, serve God now so that you can be free. One day when I have everything together, then I will start being generous. No, God calls you now to serve Him now. Walk in the right direction now because that is how God brings freedom is in your serving of Him. Don't wait to first be free in order to serve Him. Serve Him now so you can be free. Does it make sense? Keep walking in the right direction if, in fact, you are choosing to start again. Number four, tell somebody what Jesus has done for you. This is such a powerful, powerful concept. No matter what it is, which part of your life it is that you have to start again, tell people about Jesus and what He has done for you. Now, when we start saying that, people immediately start going to, well, I'm going to tell people about, you know, in, in 1974, what happened was I needed a parking space. And then, <laughs> this is what Jesus did for me. Really, what I am asking you to do in order to start again is to share the gospel. That's what I'm asking you to constantly do. Because in giving yourself to God, you'll see that you, as you water others, you yourself will be watered. As you serve God in this manner, you will be amazed at how God puts life back together. And I've been drilling you with this idea that there is absolutely no way to train the heart. I can train my son's manners, but I can't train his heart, right? I can get him to say the words, thank you, but I can't make him be grateful. I, I, you know, there's so many things we can, we can force on the outside, but that's what religion does. But Jesus comes, and the gospel changes from the inside out. Now, he does say thank you, but out of gratitude, not out of 
fear of getting in trouble for not saying it. But how do you train heart? How do you teach heart? There's one way and one way only. There's no other possible way of teaching somebody heart. Let me just, let me just tell you this. I used to think I could take somebody off the front row and take them to South Africa and they'll have heart and not just action. Not possible. Because I was like, yeah, I want them to see what it is to really struggle. I want them to see, I want them to see people who, who, who don't have life like they have life. And I want them to give and maybe they'll get and, you know, hand out sandwiches and maybe they'll, maybe it'll, it doesn't work that way. There's one way and one way only to teach heart and that is to, um, the word I usually use, I'm, uh, I'm at a loss for, but is to apply the gospel. Is to use the gospel on a daily basis on yourself. Because only now that I've realized how much God has loved I can love too. When I realized that I was an enemy and he loved me while I was an enemy, now I too can love even though it's an enemy in my life. That's why he says, go love your enemies because it is now possible for you to do so only now that you've realized as an enemy God loved you. I can now forgive. Why? Because I just realized how much I've been forgiven for. When I saw the amount that God forgave me for in Christ Jesus, my heart, it smote my heart, it struck my heart, my heart was cut. And suddenly I'm like, don't, don't even worry that you've done anything to me. I don't, uh, I'm nobody. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I forgive you in comparison to how much I have been forgiven. Versus just being told, hey, you've got to forgive. All right, I'll forgive you. You know, <laughs> those are just dead words. But to put heart into it is to understand the amount you've been forgiven for. Why, why do I love being generous? I love being generous because I see how generous God was toward me. When I apply the gospel to my own life on a daily basis, my heart gets cut and is broken and is softened in the hands of God. And suddenly there's heart and there's not just action. So it's so important for us to share the gospel. Because when we share the gospel, it does something for us, to us, in us, and it does something for others. The fastest way to grow as a Christian is to start reaching out to others. And to do so, of course, we have to know what the gospel is. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Of course, you can boil this all the way down to, a, to five statements. But I would like to mention them, but also develop some of it just for greater understanding. The gospel is God's proclamation of His plan of salvation. The gospel is God declaring His plan to save man and how He was going to save man from man's sin that leads to death. The gospel is God declaring His plan to save man from His own wrath against man's sin. Because remember, God saves us from Himself. The gospel needs to be viewed in two parts. It's like a coin with both sides in order for that coin to be valid. The gospel needs to be viewed in both these parts. The first is the events of Christ's life. Jesus Christ, front and center, allows for there to be a gospel. So first we need to understand the events of Jesus Christ's life. And when we share the gospel with somebody else, it's not just, oh, God loves you and and say these words off. No, it's not that. It, you have to understand that there was a man, 
there was God who came as a man and lived on the earth as Jesus Christ. And here are the events of his life. So we have to understand the events of his life. And number two, the other side of that coin is that we have to understand the significance of those events. What did those events mean? And what do they mean to us personally? So what are these events of Christ? Christ's life. Number one, God came to earth. Oh, Jesus wasn't God. Of course He was. We call Him Emmanuel, God with us. God came to earth. Number two, Jesus died on the cross and was buried. As He came to earth, we named Him Jesus. He died upon a cross and was buried. Number three, He rose from the dead three days later. Number four, then Jesus gave this great commission. And number five, He then was taken up in a cloud to be on the right hand of the Father. So let's look at the significance of these events. That's the historical part of the gospel. And now let's look at the spiritual significance of those historical events. Number one, God came to earth. So do you mind opening that door for me just so that there's some kind of breeze? God came to earth. Why? Because man had fallen into sin. Thank you. The punishment for sin is eternal death and separation from God. You see, man was dead in his sins and subsequently could not save himself. And because of God's great love for man, His great love for man who is now dead, He came to earth to execute His plan of salvation for those who would believe in Him, those He was going to make alive. The second is that Jesus died on the cross. Why? Well, there was an achievement forged between God the Father and Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus gave Himself to be crushed by God. But there's a reason for it. And we need to understand that reason in order to understand the gospel. Together, when Jesus gave Himself so God could crush Him on the cross, it was to forge something called a gift of righteousness, a gift of righteousness. In order to forge this gift of righteousness that was going to be given to dead sinners, God the Father and God the Son had to achieve a few things in that act of Jesus giving Himself to be crushed by the Father. And the first thing that needed to be achieved was a judicial victory. Man has sinned. Man has sinned. Jesus says, here I am, throw it on me, and God crush it. And judicially, the price was paid. The crime was paid for. Forgiveness of that guilty sinner has now been made available. A victory over death took place right there. This is how God the Father and Jesus the Son forged this gift called the gift of righteousness by achieving a victory over death, which is the sinner's penalty, death. And there was victory over that death. With these victories won, this gift of righteousness, which means you have right standing with God, this gift of righteousness is now freely given to undeserving humans. It is a gift given. You cannot pay for a gift. Then, it does, then it's no longer a gift. It has to be given. That's why nobody murdered Jesus against his own will. He gave himself. 
Why did he give himself like a lamb to the slaughter? Because that's the only possible way for it to be a gift is when he gives himself to it. So when, uh, with these victories won, the gift of righteousness is now freely given to undeserving humans to make right before God, not because of what they have done, but because of what Jesus has done for them on the cross in His death and his, in His resurrection. You see, they have been made right with God, not on their own merit, but on Christ's merit. Romans 5.17 says this, and I want you to zone in because we're just going to do a little bit of exegetical thing um, uh, teaching on this. It says, for verse 17, For if by the trespasses of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one. Can everybody please use the word reigned or say the word reigned? reigned. Death ruled. Death reigned. Death reigned through this one man, Adam. Much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace... And the what? The free gift of righteousness will do what? They will reign over what used to reign them. Remember? Through Adam, death reigned. Through grace, God allows us to reign over it instead. So let's read through it again. For if by the trespasses of this one Adam... His sin, death reigned through the one, Adam. Much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now, what I wanted to show you is, there's, of course, there's a group called the, the New Apostolic Reformation, and they believe that what we need to do is uh, we need to take this verse and we are going to reign over the seven mountains of society. Ever heard of that? Yeah. And when we are reigning over those seven mountains of that, that builds up society, then Jesus will come and be king for a thousand years. Well, this is not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying that death reigned because of sin, and now by the grace of God, you will reign over it, and it will no longer reign over you. It's not saying you will reign over the education of America and the politics of America and the, and, and the arts of America. <laughs> it's not saying that at all. It's saying you will reign over the sin that keeps killing you. Amen? Actually, the Amplified Version does, a, does an okay job with this. It says, Much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in eternal life through the one. <laughs> so yes, that is true too because of the grace of God, you are saved and will one day with Christ reign eternally. So of course that is true. But it's not saying that you should reign in politics on earth so Christ could come back. All right, so number three of the gospel. It said he rose from the dead. We see the historical events. God came to earth. Jesus died upon a cross and He was buried. Then He rose from the dead and He gives this great commission and then He was taken up in a cloud. Now we see that He rose from the dead. This event is proof that your sins have been paid for. It is so that you would know that 
your sins are paid for. It's so that you would know that you have been justified. It's so that you may know that there is now victory over death. Imagine this. Imagine for a moment, Jesus comes and he says, Hey, folks, I'm about to get crucified. As you can see, they hate me around here. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to die on that cross for you. And trust me when I tell you, I'm paying, all your, I'm paying all your sins on that cross. So don't ever forget me. Build these massive religions because I'm going to die on that cross for you. And then he never rises from the dead. He just goes and dies. Now you have to believe that what he said actually happened. Now you have to believe that, no, I really believe that my sins got paid for. I really believe that because he died on the cross... I, I'm good. Death, death has no sting, man. There's victory over death. He died on that cross. You see, there's no assurance that what he said he was going to do actually happened. He could just have been a fanatical guy who went and died and said he's doing it for us. But when he rose, <laughs> now, now, all, now all, everything changes. Now, it's like he actually did that. He actually did take our sins upon him. Everything he said he was going to do, he did. And he conquered death. The ultimate outcome of sin. So the Bible says that Christ's resurrection is proof of the fact that you and I have been justified. Jesus could not have been raised from the dead if we were not justified. We would never believe it. Look at Ephesians or Romans 4.25. Romans 4.25, it says, He was delivered over to death. For what? For our sins. And He was raised. Unto what purpose? He was raised to life for what? Our justification. As He was raised from the dead, we go like, we really are justified before God. Look at that. There's the proof. Number four, Jesus gives the Great Commission. The Great Commission to evangelize is how God calls all people to come to Christ. He does so through the Great Commission. He does so through you and I evangelizing and you and I calling people to Christ to put their faith in the Lord. I want to show you something in John 6, 44. It says, now... No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Can we read this together? One, two, three. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Can we do that again? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If God draws a person, they will come to Christ. This means humans are to preach the gospel. And as this gospel gets preached, God draws men and He draws women to Christ through that preaching. My job is not to draw people to Christ. My job and your job is to preach the gospel. And then the Father who sent Jesus will draw them to Christ. Amen? That's what it says. Jesus also tells us in Matthew 11, 28 and, 20 and 30, it says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Come to me if you are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon uh, you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is a calling to come to Christ and to find rest in Him and Him alone. You know, I always read that verse, and I would ask myself the question, weary from what? Weary from what? You see, they are weary from the burden of having to save themselves from God's coming wrath. Just worn out with attempting to qualify themselves with God before the wrath of God comes upon them. I said it last week, I want to repeat it. Some important guy whose name I forgot said, you could comfortably live without Jesus, but the question is, can you comfortably die without Jesus? The answer is no. You can comfortably live without Jesus, but can you comfortably lay on that deathbed dying without Jesus? He's our only hope. So here Jesus says, my yoke is easy. If you're weary, come to me. Weary from what? Weary from carrying the burden of having to qualify yourself or save yourself from the coming wrath. The burden of making themselves right with God was wearisome and was burdensome. Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified. Since now therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So here people knew that the wrath of God is coming, and they knew that they didn't qualify, and this wore them out. And Jesus said, now that you are worn out, come to me. I will change everything for you. I will change all of it because I will now carry that burden, that burden of you having to be qualified. I will do it for you. So how does a person respond to this call? Remember the first verse we read? God will draw men unto Jesus, and unless God draws them, they cannot come. And then Jesus said, come if you're weary, if you're weary and burdened by this. Most, many people are not burdened by it. They're not burdened with the idea of having to be qualified with God. That doesn't bother them at all. Um, but, I mean, many people actually feel like they're blessed to get to do everything they shouldn't do. <laughs> it's like, man, I scored again. <laughs> Man, I got to do that again. And they kind of like, they feel justified in living for themselves and for the world. They feel justified being a slave. But when a person's heart changes, suddenly everything changes. They see, they see everything from an eternal perspective. And now they need to be qualified with God. And when that starts making them weary, Jesus says, now you who are weary, not you who are not weary, you who are weary, come unto me and I will Give you rest from that burden. I, I want to challenge you. Why don't you go and you teach, you show that to people downtown. Just walk around on the streets downtown and say, hey, you know what? Jesus wants to carry your burden. And you're like, <laughs> what burden? I make a huge amount of money. I've got all these girlfriends. I'm young. I'm rich. And I'm a ruler. What are you even talking about? 
Jesus, carry my, my, my burden. I'm weary from what? But if you go and you say, hey, you know what? Jesus wants to carry that burden if you're weary. If you're carrying it and you're attempting to be right with God, you're attempting to qualify with God, Jesus wants to carry that for you. And the person goes, well, what must I do? How does, how does this happen? Tell me the next step. You see, that's when, it's, that's when it's true for when God draws men, they will come to Christ. Can you see the difference? I want to show that to you quick. In Acts 16, verse 29, And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. They had just sung in the prison. The prison was shaken. The doors flung open, Paul and Silas. And the jailer was sleeping, but the jailer woke up. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. He saw that they were free. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here is the unsaved guy begging the saved people to tell them, tell him what must he do to be saved. He was urgent. And they said this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. In Acts 2 verse 37, we see the same thing. Now, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Just to give you a back, back uh, drop for the story, they got filled with the Holy Ghost in the upper room. There were thousands of people standing outside wondering what's going on. Peter jumps up and he had just denied Jesus not so long ago. Now he's preaching. And he's preaching the gospel. And as he's preaching the gospel, these people that were listening actually already knew the scriptures. They were already religious people. And as he was preaching the gospel, they, could put, they, they connected the dots. And they saw what was going on. And it, they, they realized what was happening. And then it, I'll pick it up here in verse 37. Now when they heard this, what Peter was saying, they were cut to the heart. They didn't respond with like, weary from what? No, they were cut to the heart. Burdened? Are you kidding me? I'm not burdened. I'm, I'm having everything I've ever wanted in life. Those weren't the guys. No. These people were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What must I do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, people were never asked if they wanted to be saved. What actually happened was the gospel was preached, and then people asked what they needed to do in order to be saved. If you preach the gospel, people will go like, well, can I, can I get in on that? Like, how do I become part of this? I'm on the outside looking in. What can I do to be saved? See, the gospel will bring a certain level of conviction to the one God is drawing where that person will say, well, then what can I do? Tell me now. We'll get baptized. And the guy goes, well, there, there's some water. There's some dirt with water in it. Uh, there's, there's a little puddle there. Can you baptize me? Just what can I do to be saved? Where what, we, what we sometimes do is we just, we just throw the bar so low. It's like, yeah, you're all saved. Why? Because God loves you. You see, you cannot equate the love of God with the forgiveness of God. It's not the same thing. Of course God loves everyone. Is everyone forgiven? Not those in Christ. Not so. Yeah, that's what I meant. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> Let me say it for the, for the recording. <laughs> those inside of the ark. 
will be saved. <laughs> those inside of Christ will be forgiven, but those outside of will perish with the judgment of God. Thanks for that. People will never ask, did they want to go to heaven? No, people were told the gospel. And then they begged, well, then what must I do? This is how you know God draws a person to Christ. They with urgency initiate that request. What must I do to be saved? Number five, the history part, Jesus was taken up in a cloud. The spiritual significance is that he became our high priest and he's with God today on his right hand making intercession for you and me, for every person who is in Christ today. Today Jesus is at the Father's right hand as your advocate. He's actually fighting and defending every accusation your enemy brings against you, past and present. So we have to learn how to share the gospel because if you want to start again, I don't care with what it is. I don't care if it's with, with relationships, if it's with finances, but remember it is, it is applying the gospel to yourself daily that actually does an internal work and that internal work will cause everything else to become sincere. Every thank you becomes sincere. Every please is sincere. Every bit of generosity is actually sincere. It's the gospel that does that. And if we're going to start again, whether it be in our marriages or with our children, the gospel allows us to do that sincerely. And then finally, if you want to start again, endure correction, endure correction. This is short, so please stay tuned. You see, there is no training and no coaching. There's no wisdom outside of correction. I mean, even when you read the Bible and the wisdom of God comes to you, it's correcting you. And when God sends somebody into your life, oftentimes their example by itself corrects you. And then again, what they say may correct you and what they may perceive about you may correct you. But we have to learn to endure correction because Oftentimes, the loss we have experienced was because of things we've done wrong. We've gone into the wrong direction, and we've experienced loss, and we've experienced pain, and we want to start over. And when we start over, we want to go into the same direction. No, no, God will send somebody into your life to help you and realign you or recorrect, uh, uh, direct you into a new direction. So we have to endure correction. There is no love outside of correction. There is no love outside of Correction. Hebrews 12.3 says, If you want to keep from becoming faint-hearted and weary, think about His patience. As sinful men did such terrible things to Him, think about His patience. Verse 4, After all, you have never yet struggled against sin and temptation until you sweat great drops of blood. Verse 5, and have you, quite, have you quite forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you, his child? He said, my son, don't be angry when the Lord punishes you. Don't be angry when the Lord punishes you. Don't be discouraged when he has to show you where you are wrong. And here's why you shouldn't be angry and discouraged. Are you ready? Verse 6, for when God punishes you, it simply proves to you that he loves you. 
And when he whips you, the living Bible says, it proves you are really his child. It proves you are really his child. It proves you are really his child. We have to put different glasses on and see this from a different perspective. When God corrects, He corrects because He loves. See it that way. Receive it that way. Because, you know, He could have just left you. <laughs> he, could have, he could have just left me running full speed into the wrong direction. He could have just left me. But no, He loves me. And He says, now why don't you come this way, son? absolutely can see as a father how it is that my love for my son drives me to redirect him and make sure he's corrected into the right direction. Now God does that for you and I. So if and when you start again in life, remember, listen to the pain you have. It's attempting to tell you something. Number two, Recognize and cooperate with God's people that He has placed in your life already. Number three, keep walking in the right, right direction. It's uphill sometimes. It's lonely sometimes. You keep walking because it's in your serving God that He delivers you. He doesn't first deliver you to serve Him. He calls you. To serve Him and in it you will find that life, the pieces of life will come back together. Keep walking. Then tell somebody what Jesus has done for you. Forget the parking spot. Because then when the parking spot doesn't happen next week, you go like, oh, well, I guess then He doesn't. <laughs> like, no. It's the gospel. Because in it is God's power to change a heart. Listen to the pain. Recognize the people. Keep walking. Tell somebody what Jesus has done for you. Get good at sharing the gospel. And then finally, endure correction. Endure correction. Endure correction. If you take those and you say, today I'm starting again. I'm going to start again. Friend, I can tell you right now, God is going to do great things through that. Stop just, uh, what's that word? Gambling. On your, on your fresh start? Well, this time I hope it's going to work. <laughs> I hope this time he doesn't divorce me. I hope this time she doesn't leave me. I hope this time, you know, I don't get disappointed. I hope this time it's not going to be absolutely, dis, uh, you know, depressing when I go through that, that thing again in business. I hope this time, no matter what it is, if you're starting again, remember, start with this. Listen to pain. Recognize people that God has given you. Keep walking the straight and the narrow. Tell people about the goodness of God, His gospel, and then endure correction along the way. Amen? Amen. Did you get something out of the Word today?